0: Welcome to the Beyond Sunday Podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday Podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, the Director of Broadcast and Media Outreach here at First Baptist, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing today?
1: I'm cold this morning, yeah. so as we were recording this, the temperatures have dropped, and there's uh, there's a little bit of wintry weather around, so um, I, uh, the older I get, appreciate warmth more and more. So I'm looking forward. We were driving the other night, and it was nearly nearly uh, six o'clock, and I noticed that there was just a hint of light remaining in the sky. so I'm looking forward to that, but uh, very thankful for the opportunity to have a chill today.
0: So speaking of light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to go into Revelation here. There
1: you go. Nice transition. That was really good.
0: Thank you. We talked about Revelation 4 through 5 on Sunday. I'm just going to read 4 because that's the more pertinent passage. Yeah. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, and that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, And by your will, they existed and were created. Okay, so there's a lot going on in that passage. A lot. You picked that out to represent worship. Why did you do that?
1: So this image, this vision of the throne room in heaven has always been captivating to me, as have been the other representations of the throne room of heaven throughout Scripture, for the simple fact that there is always such awe invoked. Of Almighty God. So, whether we're talking about Isaiah's vision or Ezekiel's vision or this vision here in Revelation, what we are seeing is this overwhelming sense of God's greatness and God's magnitude for lack of a better term. Um, I grew up in the wake of the 1970s. I was born in 1980. In the 1970s, you kind of had the Jesus is my friend movement. Uh, You had the God is my co-pilot bumper stickers or license plate that became very popular. Um, And so I grew up in the aftermath of the Jesus is my buddy sort of a movement. And I'm sure I was influenced and inherited some of that as well. Uh, and then when I started ministry, it was the there were literal shirts made. Uh, Jesus is my homeboy. That's the new emanation in the in the in the early 2000s of Jesus is my friend. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the friend of sinners. But I think sometimes we we take that a little too far, and we become just a little bit too familiar with almighty god and what these visions show us uh, are the reverence the the great power the fact that god is almighty and uh, truly, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what we see here is, is a vision of that. We see here a vision of God's majesty, and then the subsequent response of those who have the opportunity to see God's majesty. And every single one of them uh, responds with humility, responds with Um, an overwhelming sense of, God, you are holy and I am not. Um, But we also see that this great, grand, majestic, almighty God loves us. God loves Isaiah. God loves Ezekiel. God loves John. God loves you and me. And so there's this balance between this, this great magnitude of God's holiness and majesty and his amazing love for us. And so I think that to truly understand the, the weight of his love, we also have to understand the weight of his majesty. Just as we wouldn't walk into Buckingham Palace and go try to give King Charles a high five. Um so we would approach Almighty God with reverence and with awe and with an appropriate fear. That, that word awe is translated from the Greek phobos, where we get phobia. So when the Bible says, fear the Lord, there is this sense in which God's immensity is such that we should be afraid of Him. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, however, That living almighty God has opened the way to himself for us and for all people through Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. So I think it's helpful for us to be reminded. That, yes, Jesus is the friend to sinners, because Jesus opens his arms and says, come to me, and that we are able to come to God. And, and God says, boldly approach my throne of grace through Jesus Christ, um, that we are able to call God our Abba, our Father, through Jesus Christ. Um, but we can't forget that God is almighty, and God is immense, and God is majestic, and God is glorious, and God is holy. And so we don't, we don't want to cheapen that as we approach him in worship.
0: There was a writer named Paul Philip Levertov who expressed it that you need to have love and fear of God together. It's like you need a wing of each, a, a wing of love and a wing of fear to approach God. If you have just one, you're not going to quite get there because you're going to have a misunderstanding of who God is and how you should approach Him.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that, I think that's so insightful. You look back through all the Old Testament, and one of the things we discussed potentially talking about here was people who worshiped God inappropriately in the Old Testament. And so you think about um, Aaron's sons, or you think about King Uzziah, or you think about even King Saul, the first king who sought to sacrifice, you know. People worshiping God inappropriately carried immense consequences. Uh, often, it meant their lives. For King Saul, it meant that that the kingdom was taken away from him. He tried to be something he was not supposed to be. Aaron's sons who introduced strange fire uh, before the Lord. King Uzziah who who sought to to burn incense to the Lord, and that's not your job, King Uzziah. Um, but you think about the people who approached God inappropriately, and there were huge implications for that. And so I think that that we need to be reminded that that God's perfect love for us casts out fear of punishment, condemnation, but it doesn't cast out the truth that we ought to revere God as we approach Him in worship.
0: Yeah, the more I thought about that idea, I was more and more fascinated by the idea that all these people were trying to worship God. It's just they did it poorly. And then it it connected with the passage that you talked about on Sunday from John 4, where Jesus says that you have to worship in spirit and truth. You have to have both of them together. You can't just have one or the other, or you're going to, again, go sideways. So let's look at John 4 with Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. What is the context with his words here? What is the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan, and what are they talking about? Yeah, so the
1: Samaritans were a hated people group. Um, it was not a good situation. Uh, the Samaritans were hated by Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, they were a race of human beings created by the intermarriage of Jewish people and Assyrian people during uh, during the time um, during which the Assyrians had had conquered. One of God's laws for his people was that you do not intermarry with those of a different religion. And so the Samaritans were um, this group of people who... Um, were looked upon as unclean by the Jewish people because their ancestors had intermixed with non-Jewish people, the Assyrians. And they were looked upon as, I don't know that the Gentiles would look at them as unclean, but somehow tarnished because now um, <laughs> you have the, the, really the mixing of Gentile and Jew. In John chapter four, uh, John writes that Jesus had to pass through Samaria to get where he was going. And while of course the Bible is true, um Jesus had to pass through Samaria, not because he was limited by geography, because most of the Jews who were making the tr- the travel that Jesus was making would go over to the Jordan River to avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman. This woman is at the well in the middle of the day. Uh, the women went to draw water from the well early in the morning and at dusk because it was cooler at those times. And so the fact that this woman was at the well in the middle of the day is telling of the fact that she did not want to be uh, around other women we learn in Jesus' interactions with her that she uh, has had five husbands and is now living with a man who is not her husband. Uh, that would have been a source of great shame for her and very likely a source of indignation to the other women as they looked upon her, perhaps some of those women um, whose, whose own husbands might have gone after her. So this is a difficult situation and so when Jesus comes and and meets her there and it's just him and it's just her and he asks her for a drink she responds how do you a Jew Ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. So Jesus is crossing some, some cultural boundaries here. Uh, he's a man talking to a woman without the woman's husband present, and so that's a boundary. Um, he's a Jewish person talking to a Samaritan person. That's a boundary. But what Jesus is showing is that God's love transcends even those cultural boundaries that have been set up. Well, when Jesus kind of exposes her, when he says, go call your husband, and she says, I don't have a husband, and he said, yeah, you're right, you've had five, I think the reason that she asks about worship is to change the subject. (laughs) She doesn't want to follow this line of discussion. Oh, you're in my business. She says, I can see you're a prophet. Let me ask you a Sunday school question instead of talking any more about my love life, because it's a mess and we don't need to discuss it. And so we have this little interlude where she talks about, okay, you Jews say you're supposed to worship at the temple. Uh, We Samaritans say you're supposed to worship here at Mount Gerizim. Which one is right? Messiah is going to tell us. Well, Jesus is going to tell her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. But what you have here is this notion in the Old Testament that to worship God, you had to go to him, right? So... Within a Samaritan context, you came to Mount Gerizim to worship. Within a Jewish context, you went to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. And Jesus is telling her that that's about to change. That paradigm is about to shift. God desires worship that is in spirit and in truth. And and the bigger paradigm shift is no longer would we go to a temple to worship. Rather, when we receive Christ, the Bible says we become a temple. In fact, we become the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit comes into us so that so that worship is not the result of my going to a place to meet God, but rather my humbling myself to meet God who dwells within me uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so the the difference is vast. And when when Jesus tells her that God is spirit, and true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth, uh, the idea most conservative theologians agree, it's not that, that we're worshiping by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, but rather within our spirit. That, that, that you know, The psalmist would say, "My deep cries out to deep. My deep is calling out to God's deep. So worship is less about my physical location and more about the condition of my heart because God is with me always. Now, again, we don't want to construe that to say we shouldn't gather together. We shouldn't go to church. We should, you know, because the Bible is very clear. We ought not to forsake assembling ourselves together because there's just something special, you know. I love singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs at my house. I use YouTube to help me in, in private devotions and worship. I have a I have a, a worship a private worship and devotional guide that I follow uh, every day. But there's just something so special when you are gathered together, singing and worshiping and hearing God's Word and and, and encouraging one another um, as the Holy Spirit in me and the Holy Spirit in you uh, draws us together. There's something so special about that. So we don't want to construe this to say that we don't need to go to church. I think we absolutely do need to attend the body. But... Worship is not about going to where God is. for God, through Christ, has come to where we are. and we are now, if we're in, believer, if we're believers, we are the temple of the Living God. I think it's just a beautiful thing.:
0: Would I be correct in saying that that would be somewhat revolutionary for the time in that for the Jewish people there's the temple, and that was given by God. But then for the Gentiles, they have all their different pagan temples, but here Jesus is saying, and then you know later Paul is saying, no, no, no. You have to abandon the pagan temples, worship God. You don't have to come to Jerusalem. You can worship from where you are, not in a temple.
1: Absolutely, and I'll tell you, if you go to places of antiquity, so I got to go to Corinth, for example, and when you walk through Old Corinth, I mean, there's just ruins everywhere, and they're all temples, all temples, all altars. all. You know, I got to go to Athens. And the Apostle Paul said in Athens, I can see that you are very religious is the word he said. He actually used a word that uh, is somewhat ambiguous that could mean religious or superstitious. Mm -hmm. So I think he was trying to be ambiguous there. But anyway, um, I've been to these places and there are literal temples everywhere. Now they're in ruins now, but that's what you would do. You would go to the temple. You would go to the temple to burn incense uh, in Rome. Rome would leave you alone. You could worship whoever you wanted, as long as once a year you went to the temple, burnt incense, and said one phrase. And that phrase was Caesar is Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, the Christians had a problem with that because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This would be groundbreaking. This, you know, this woman is asking. I mean, it's a legitimate question. Where should we go to worship God? Because throughout the history of God's people, God came and was with them. He was with them uh, in the tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness. And then he instructed Solomon to build the temple there at Jerusalem. And so Solomon built the temple. God was with his people, but they still had to go to where he was. Um, and this is, this is groundbreaking and new because, again, the temple wouldn't be around much longer. Uh, we know it was destroyed in 70 A.D., But the temple has become believers. Well, just think about in the context of First Baptist Church Bowling Green. Uh, Our church um, building was destroyed in 1991 by a devastating fire. And the talk around Bowling Green was First Baptist Church has been destroyed. Well, no, the building is destroyed. But First Baptist Church is still very much intact. Um, they went down and started meeting at Bowling Green High School's auditorium. The church is not the building. And even we have that mental block where we, we talk about church and we think about a building. Well, the church is not the building. The church is the gathered believers who are the temple of God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And wherever they gather, that's church. And so um, as much as that would be a mental block for us, multiply that by a thousand to think about the the, the shift in thinking that Jesus is here introducing to the woman at the well.
0: So that'll take us into today's listener question. Listeners, if you have a question, just go to the link in the show notes or comment on the post below. Jeff, why is Revelation so different from the rest of the Bible? (laughs)
1: That is, that is a great question, and it is, it is an intuitive question. That's absolutely true. Um, the genre of Revelation is actually different. Uh, it is um, apocalyptic literature. So if you go to Revelation chapter 1, uh, the prologue to the book, uh, beginning with verse 1, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. literature we see that the prophets would speak of things that were not but that were to come well so we have in revelation we have prophetic literature where john is receiving this revelation and incidentally just a just a little pet peeve there's no s at the end of the word it is not revelations it is revelation. So um, John is receiving this revelation from God, uh, being given to him by God's messenger, this angel who shows him all these things. But it's prophetic for us because it hasn't happened yet. There, there's so much within the book that we are looking forward to. So there's there's necessarily a degree of mystery to it because it hasn't happened yet. And so there's some sense in which people are trying to figure out, okay, what's it going to look like when it does happen? And and, and there are many different ways of viewing revelation, interpreting revelation. There's a lot of symbolism there. Um, there are people who view it in a view that it's much of it has already happened. Um, others who view it from a futuristic perspective that... Most of it has not yet happened. Um, Others view it that it's ongoing now, that it's unfolding before us, and so I'm not going to I'm not going to dive too deeply into those particular um, interpretations for the simple fact that we don't have six to seven hours to. To rightly cover all of them, right? Uh, some of my favorite big theological words come in discussing Revelation, and and um, are you a preterist or a futurist, or you know, just all of the different views of the the millennium and all those sorts of things. But but suffice it to say. That revelation is different one because it's prophetic but but two because it's apocalyptic so it's talking about the end of the world and the end of the age and and i think that 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 uh, clearly differentiates it from most of the new testament with the exception of some some writings in the, to the church at thessalonica the church at corinth i mean there's some there's some hints to these things jesus talks about signs of the end of the age um so it's not completely unique in that it's uh, in that it's addressing these things, but it is unique compared to the vast majority of of the New Testament. Um, and therefore it, it's certainly different from uh, reading the rest of the Bible,
0: yeah, and you touched on how it's apocalyptic. Uh, to my understanding, apocalyptic literature is trying to glimpse behind the veil, so yeah. it's looking for what is happening in the spiritual realm, or at least some sort of symbol of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Yep, And there's like a whole genre of it in Jewish literature.
1: There really is, particularly around this time during which it was written. And there were a lot of people who were writing um, pseudepigraphically. They were writing uh, apocalyptic literature, but using names from Old Testament heroes like Enoch and others. Um, So they were trying to give it that weight and that authority. John doesn't do that. He writes in his own name, um, not trying to magnify himself, but trying to identify himself and say, yes, I have received this revelation from God to share with you. And so that's, that's a vital distinction. But yes, there was a lot of apocalyptic literature in Judaism, particularly stemming from around this time. Um, if you think about the fact that you were a, a good Jewish person living during this time under the thumb of Rome, uh, it's, it's a difficult time to live. I mean, it just really is. You're having to pay taxes to live in the land that God promised to you your forefathers that you would live in, but you're still having to pay taxes. And you, yes, uh, your king is Almighty God, but your king is also Herod. And so it's, it's, it's a difficult time. And so People were looking and imagining what would the end of the age be, and of course, you look back in the Old Testament and you've got Daniel with some some prophecy about the end of the age. You've got Ezekiel, you've got uh, Zechariah, you've got some hints toward um, apocalyptic literature. Yeah, it was a popular genre at the time, and God cuts through all the chaff by giving His revelation of what truly will take place, um, and giving it through John as he's exiled on the island of Patmos.
0: I think it's good to know that because it's not like Revelation is just a crazy guy writing out what he's dreaming about or something like that. Like This is within a genre of literature. There are expectations and conventions that John uses. What he's referencing is symbolism used in other places or references to biblical festivals. All of this would have been understood to his readers and would have meaning, not just you know nonsensical or prophecies that we wouldn't understand, it's meant to encourage, and it can be encouraging to us because we're looking toward the same end.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and and particularly, you know, John emphasizes because God emphasizes the victory that we who are in Christ will receive because Christ has won the victory. Um, uh, one of my favorite passages in all of this is in Revelation twenty. This is after the millennium, and the thousand years are ended. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Picture this as if it were a movie. So think about all these vast armies. Their number as of the sand of the sea. So I mean, we could do something like this with CGI now. Mm-hmm. And they're coming up and they're surrounding God's people and they're surrounding God's city and I mean, there's this the 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 intensity of this moment where it looks like God's people are going to be so overwhelmed by all the wicked ones, all the evil, all the evil ones. And this is how it says, so verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's all. Talk about anti-climax. I mean, it's like this, 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 this movie scene where, again, the, the, the tension is so great, and then all of a sudden, God's like, yeah, no problem. Got that. We're done. That's the victory that we have. And, and as we navigate a world that has lost its mind. I mean, just is what it is. God has turned our world over to their own desires. And if you've ever parented a child, you know that's one of the worst things you can do for that child. Uh, That is judgment. Do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. That's judgment. That is absolute judgment. Romans 1 tells us it is judgment. When God lets us just function according to our abased minds, well, our world's doing that. And it can become pretty distressing at times to say, my goodness, things are rough. But if we look back over the course of the last 20 centuries or so, things have gotten pretty rough in different ways at different times, and God is still on his throne. And in the end, all who trust and follow Jesus will reign and rest with Almighty God, and all will be well. I know for a lot of people, Revelation is so scary, and it used to be for me. But it's meant to encourage us as we trust and follow Jesus. Now, for those who are outside of Jesus, it ought to be scary. Uh, scary enough, prayerfully, that they would turn and flee to Christ. Um, but, yeah, what an encouragement that, that God wins when it's all said and done.
0: Amen. Can you pray us out for today?
1: Let's pray. Lord, we stand in your victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We confess that we do not wear the victor's crown because we have won the victory Lord, rather, we stand in your victory, for you have so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You ask us in your word, Who is it that overcomes the world? And it is only the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Lord, we believe, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we do so to the glory of God the Father, and we do so freely. Lord, looking forward to that day when you return and all things are set right. Until then, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in worshiping you, in lifting up Jesus so that all people might be drawn unto Christ. Lord, we know your arms are open to receive anyone who will come to you in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, we pray that our legacy, our story would be one of worship, one of honoring you, of exalting Christ and helping others trust and follow Jesus along the way. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley.